Midlands Today on Midlands 183 with O'Brien's Mullingar. It's official Westmeath. No county loves Renault more. P.O.Brien.ie When people in the Midlands want to talk, they talk to Will Faulkner. Well, good morning. The sun is shining. The sky is blue. I hope the form is good with you. And, well, when you've been cooked up in isolation, it's a pretty good feeling when you can finally see the prison gates. This is hopefully my final day in the COVID studio. I'll have to get dressed tomorrow. And on that sobering image, coming up today, Russian troops cross into Ukraine. How will the West respond? You meet the awfully man who has fostered five children under the age of 12. Why did he take it on? And why should you consider doing the same? And another report about drinking water might just make you question what comes out of your taps. Now, when you call 0818 300 103 is the Midlands 103 comment line. You can text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. And our main competition today is with thanks to St. Kieran's Nursing Home in Rathcabin. Tickets for you to see Francis Black, Mary Coughlin and Sharon Shannon in concert in Tullamore this coming Friday. So, what are the main stories? What's the world talking about today? Well, let's turn to the Irish Times. And the lead headline there, Ukraine president says, we are not afraid as Putin orders troops over the border. And this was a very stage-managed exchange yesterday. Vladimir Putin uh, met with his Security Council. They held a press conference earlier in the day. And it was clear that he was going to recognize two territories within Ukraine as being independent. And reports came in late last night that Russian troops and Russian tanks were crossing over into territories as quote-unquote keepers. Now, you really have to be a student of history to go back and discover, well, this is a territory that for a long, long time didn't really have an identity. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was once controlled by Lithuania, by Poland. It, uh, again, that eastern part of the country had very close ties with Russia, was once part of Russia, um, and until the 1990s was part of the Soviet Union. And even up until 2014, the government in Ukraine was very pro-Russia. Events since then have created division. And this is the latest chapter in what is becoming a very violent story. And right across Europe this morning, leaders are discussing what sort of financial sanction to apply against Russia. But Putin has form in this area, whether it was Georgia a decade ago, a little over a decade ago at this stage, Crimea in 2014. I'm not sure he's the sort to be worried about sanctions, especially when we are so reliant here on Russian gas and Russian oil. And we'll see whether words amount to anything over the coming days and weeks. Now, back home, 
a bold new plan is being launched for the health service. So various targets are being set by Paul Reid, the chief executive of the HSE, such as you will not have to wait more than a year for a hospital procedure by the end of 2022. We see if that actually materialises, but there are other goals and other ways in which perhaps some of these targets will be paid for. Uh, There is one line that I think might catch your attention if you are a medical card holder. It says they aim to reduce the number of medical card holders by almost 100,000 by the end of this year. So that usually means reviews, spot checks, maybe... They're just optimistic that a lot of people who lost their job during the pandemic will get back to work and you may well be one of them. And if so, your income is higher and you won't need a medical card. And I'm sure that's what they'll say. But we've seen these so-called probity reviews before. But they're also talking about extra home support hours, um, extra mammograms, additional cervical screens. So on the whole, it looks positive, but the devil is always in the detail. You have to watch those things. Here's a dilemma from the Irish Times this morning. DNA testing and ancestry databases, they're fascinating. They can be so enlightening about your family tree and who travelled where a hundred years ago and who is related to whom and so on. However, they can also throw up questions that you don't want the answer to. And this lady writes to the paper saying she has just discovered that her father is not her biological dad and that her real father died many years ago. And she says only her mother knows the truth. She presumably had an affair because she knows her biological father was in the same social group as her adopted father. Uh, Adopted not being the technical term, but anyway. So the question she's asking is whether she should address this with her mum and ultimately her dad finds out and how much harm will it do? And the paper seems to suggest, well, just because her parents are older doesn't mean they're not tough, doesn't mean they're not able to handle some emotional carnage and that these questions deserve to be answered. Mm, Not sure would I rush in there in a hurry. And I don't envy her, do you? Carbon tax is due to increase in May. Hey, good news, not. So... Sinn Féin is calling on the government to not apply this year's carbon tax increase and that in failing to do so, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference to the state's target of reducing carbon emissions by 51% between now and 2030. Pierce Doherty says the carbon tax disproportionately affects poorer people in rural Ireland who rely on diesel and petrol cars for transport. And I'm sure that will be a popular position because if you have ever bought petrol or diesel recently, you'll know just how ridiculously expensive it has become. And applying an extra few cent in carbon tax is just that perhaps straw that breaks the camel's back for a lot of people. Then again, if you have a little bit of extra money, if you're coming to the point of changing your car or even changing your van for work, The story of Ivan Murphy from Galway is covered in the Irish Independent this morning, and it's worth a read. So he filled one of his vans recently. It cost him 125 quid in diesel. And he said, that's it. I'm changing. 
So he investigated electric vans and ended up buying two of them and also changed the family car for an electric car. And he says the cost, the fuel bill, has reduced from €300 Euro per week to €65 Euro per week. It is life-changing. So a huge endorsement for electric vehicles there. Now, it depends. If you're on the road, in your van, doing big mileage, you will have to structure your day in a more planned fashion. You will have to make sure you're near a supercharger maybe to top up at some point. But if you're taking a lunch break somewhere and there is a charger nearby, there's no reason it should be any different than to driving a diesel van in terms of experience. But it does require that bit of planning. The savings, though, are worth looking into. That is for sure. Where shall we go next? What else did I see that might be of interest to you? Um, yes, the Gorthay raided a business in the Midlands in the last few days. And according to Ken Foy in the Irish Independent, they suspect this business has been selling weapons and other illegal items to teenagers under the counter. And there has been concern for this business for quite a long time, and only at the weekend did the Gorthy go in in what was a planned operation. Now, we'll dig a little deeper there, find out more about what's going on. Um, it appears the business is in Longford. Now... I was humiliated, says Phil Hogan, the former commissioner, uh, EU commissioner, indeed former minister, and he's referring to the Golfgate episode, that he was treated by the mob very unfairly, not just the media mob, the political mob, and he's looking for some sort of uh, an apology, or at least a statement from Leo Varadkar and from Michal Martin. Leo Varadkar, no doubt, is a little more concerned because Phil Hogan was one of those who helped him take the top job in Fine Gael. But he also made comments in a different interview. You can read his uh, interview today in the Irish Independent. He made comments earlier this week that he might be seeking compensation from the European Commission for failing to follow due process and for bowing to political pressure instead and he feels somewhat exonerated by the court case against four individuals relating to the Golfgate dinner, and the charges against those people were dropped, one of them being Donny Cassidy, former senator from County Westmeath. And he says in The Independent today, you cannot allow a member of government insist on the removal of a commissioner without due process in line with EU treaties. Otherwise, you could have commissioners being removed every day. You have not heard the last of Phil Hogan. I think that's the message there. One more. And this will alarm you if you are a gentleman who has recently had COVID-19. The headline says, COVID infection can damage testicles, impair sex drive. And this is from a study in Hong Kong University. Now, how did they arrive at this conclusion? Well, you see, they were looking at rats. And they uh, found, or hamsters rather, they found in the hamsters 
there was a sharp drop in sperm count and testosterone four to seven days after COVID infection. Now, they were only able to figure this out partly by once the poor little animals were dead. They took them apart and inspected the bits and, you know. So in order to replicate that sort of a trial in humans, they'll obviously have to um, <clears throat> yeah, inspect. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to make mine available to science, if that's okay. Now, still on the agenda this morning, Russian troops cross into Ukraine. How will the West respond? The Russian position is that they are merely recognizing two independent people's republics in the east of the country, which have been in dispute since the Crimean situation in 2014. But more on that a little bit later. What does it mean for you, I suppose, is your big question. Well, we get a lot of our gas supply from Russia. So if the West hits Russia with sanctions, they will no doubt hit back in kind. And, well, energy and fuel is already expensive enough here, isn't it? More on that a little bit later. Now, have you considered ever becoming a foster carer? And this is something that perhaps you've been on the fence about or you've thought about and never followed through on. And it's useful to hear, I suppose, somebody's first-hand experience if you're trying to make up your own mind. Or maybe you've decided it's not for you, and that's fair enough. Again, be open to the possibility after listening first to Eric Shepherd, who is a foster carer from Burr. Morning, Eric. Uh, good morning, Will. You started in 2014. Would you mind telling us about the lead-up to that decision? Uh, well, uh, my wife and I had always thought about fostering, you know, right from the time that, uh, you know, shortly after we got married, uh, but we had our own uh, two children, four boys, and in 2014, our, our youngest was 14. So at that stage, you know, we, we reckoned that the time was right. So we applied to, to become foster parents. And when you say you had thought about it, was there, a, how would I say it, what did you feel the reward would be? What was the need within you to explore this? Uh, well, our, our youngest uh, child had uh, some health issues from when he was uh, very young, and there was at one stage he was in hospital, and uh, we noticed that there was a baby crying almost non-stop in, in a little room across the way. Never had any visitors mm. any time we were in with our own uh, son, and we asked the nurse, and we kind of heard a very tragic story without going into too many details, and we realised uh, that from what the nurse was saying, that that child would most likely end up in foster care, and uh, it was uh, it, it was terrible just you know you know just being in that situation and and uh, seeing a baby in in distress with with uh, seemingly nobody to actually care for him. So if we could have fostered twice there and then we we probably would have. So that kind of stayed with us for a few years. And I said, when our youngest got to the age of fourteen, we we reckoned that the time was right. Uh, that uh, our our own two uh, children were well grown at that stage. So we felt that. Uh, that the time was right, that we could open up our home to another child. We'll be hearing in a few minutes from the leader of the Midlands Foster Care Team with Tusla, and she'll go into the process and what what that involves in training and so on. But would you tell us a little of the experiences over the last nearly eight years now, um, highs and lows that you've experienced? 
Well, uh, we, we started off with uh, respite fostering, uh, which was a very gentle introduction for us anyway to fostering. Uh, in our case, it meant that uh, that we opened up our home to some young children every weekend. Uh, for, I think it was for about six months. And uh, it was a nice, gentle introduction, but we found that um, it, you know, it certainly had its challenges because these children, without going into, again, too many details, they had had very few boundaries um, uh, around them when they were growing up. And uh, so we had to kind of deal with that and to encourage them with good practices and kind of gently guiding them towards the rules if, if they were kind of bending or, or breaking the rules or doing something which most people would, would uh, feel wasn't right. Um, so after, I think, about six months of thereabouts, we got a phone call and we were asked if we could take in uh, two siblings for, for a couple of weeks. And uh, we thought about it because this would mean going to full-time foster care as opposed to just doing it at the weekend. Uh, so we, we talked it over at home and with, with our children as well. And we decided to go ahead and uh, uh, six and a half years later now, we still have the same uh, two siblings with us. And it, it's been great. Um Highs and lows, um, mostly highs, I, I would have to say, in, in, in their case. Um, we found early on just, just in, investing some time in them, uh, you know, going out with a jam jar and collecting insects, uh, going for a walk and collecting blackberries, going to the beach. Simple things that um, just, just in, you know, in, 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 when you invest some of your time with, uh, with uh, children, be they your own or, or foster children, it pays it back in spades. You can see the you know, the joy on on their faces, and uh, you you know the the big reward is seeing you know the huge impact that you can have on on uh, on on somebody's somebody's life, because what you're doing is is that you're setting them up now for 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 the rest of of, of their life. At this stage now, the the two of them we have one of them in in uh, leaving third year, the other is in junior third year, and uh, you know we just couldn't be happier with with with, with the way things have gone. Hmm. One concern a person might have is that they could become too emotionally invested in a child and if things didn't work out, they'd feel devastated perhaps. How close do you get? Um, very close, uh, I would have to say. As I said, look, we, we started off with uh, two boys and the youngest child that, that we took on there was a girl and... Uh, my wife used to say years ago that she was sorry that she never had had a daughter. Uh, I I couldn't see the difference of what the difference is to another child. Hmm. But um, yeah, at, at this stage now to say that she has me wrapped around her little finger would would, would certainly be true. And uh, <laughs> it's it, it's it's brilliant. Um, and she's very bright. Uh, she's very academic, and uh, I can see her going places and making a success for life. Uh, emotionally invested, absolutely, um, uh, and then we love it. But you know, there, I suppose we we've been very lucky. Uh, but I'm I'm sure that there are other uh, people who have become emotionally invested, and then when their um, when these children's lives have improved, or rather, whether when their parents' lives have improved to the state where, uh, or to the point rather when they come back, when the children can go back to their uh, their birth parents. It can be wrenching for for the foster parents, I'm sure, but we we haven't had that uh, situation. So as I said, we're we're very lucky. They are part of and they are part of our family, absolutely, and always will be, hopefully. Absolutely, yes. Paula McAvoy is with us. She's the leader of the Tusla Midlands Foster Care Team. Paula, good morning. Good morning, Will. 
Would you talk you? to us about? I'm great, thank you. Would you talk to us about the process a person goes through once they make the decision to explore this further? Um, I suppose the first thing they do is link in with their, the other members of their family because it's a family who foster, not just the parents in the family. Um, we have contact details, which we'll talk about later. Um, but from the time that you get the phone, you make a phone call, um, it's an exploration of the whole um, dynamic of fostering and what's involved. Um, and it's really, as you go along, you, you with the information, you decide for yourself if fostering is for you and your family. If you feel it is, then you go through an assessment process. It takes about 16 weeks um, where you get additional training about um, fostering and you also you know, see what a match would be the best for you and your family in terms of taking on the care of a child. Um, and then uh, once the assessment is over um, and you're approved, uh, we try to place children within the match of your family. Um, you know, people might start off thinking, oh, we'll be great with babies. And then as they go along, they think, no, actually school-aged children will um, suit our family best. So the process goes on and, you know, as Eric was saying there, ideally we'd like uh, foster families to start with uh, maybe respite care of children, which means taking them for maybe weekends, maybe after school, um, to give support to a family and then move on to see how that's going for them. Um, I suppose a year after they're approved, we have a review which kind of checks in with the family how are you doing? Um, we, we give them feedback about how we are finding them as foster parents and they give us feedback around how they're finding their fostering experience. Um, so that's kind of how people come into us. You know, they make that phone call, they go on that website. A lot of people know other foster parents and kind of hear firsthand from them what's involved with fostering. And that can prompt people to, to come forward and explore it as an option for their family. And when you say you'll give them feedback on how you're finding them to deal with, how invasive are the checks through the year uh, as you go along? I suppose the first one really is looking at sure they haven't had any in relation to harm or violence of children. Second of all, then, we get a medical uh, check with people to make sure they're medically fit, both um, mental health-wise as well as physically, to care for children. And we do a test protection to make sure they haven't come to the social work department in relation to child protection checks already. And then referees. So once all those checks are done, and we move in, review. I'm, we look I'm at sorry to interrupt Paula, the line is just really bad. I'm not sure if you've got a loose connection on that phone. Okay, I can, uh, sorry, can you hear me now? Now I can no? hear you perfectly. Okay, okay. I've moved four inches to the right, so I'll hold this position. <laughs> <laughs> you must be very good at yoga, go on. Oh, stop. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, 
Um, yeah, I was saying there about the reviews. We check in with families to see if they'd need additional supports or their particular trainings that would help them in their role. Um, and we let them know where they're doing well because I'd say 99% of the people who come into fostering really um, find it a rewarding experience. And the children that they care for most certainly um, benefit from a nurturing home environment where they know they're loved and cared for. What about the person's background? Because not all families are the same. Indeed, some single people or lone parents uh, might be interested. Uh, Same-sex couples, uh, those from different ethnic backgrounds. How do you try and get the right mix? Um, Well, as you say there, Will, there's all types of family in Irish society now. Uh, We've become very multicultural. There's no... um, specific area where we like to recruit people and we take people from all walks of life um, and I suppose currently um, looking for families for older children is a particular focus with this campaign Uh, seeking people from other cultures be it Nigerian or Eastern European um, that's important for children from those ethnic people you know they need to be with their own for want of a better phrase where they share the same language with their carers maybe share the same uh, culture that they came from in their own family so really if if anybody out there is thinking about fostering come forward like there's no um there's no particular requirements other than really an open heart and an open home um, from any family type that's out there Um, and if you're unsure do you know check it out um, because at least then you'll have more information as to whether this is something you can do if this is something you can give for for children and teenagers in the community um, and obviously, if if more local people become available, placing children locally is of huge benefit in terms of maybe able to keep their own schools, keep their own sporting interests, their friends. Um, you know, you you don't want children coming into the care system and being in in the other end of the country or being with a family that they can't relate to. So everybody's welcome to make to make an inquiry. Had a text from Amelda, and she's uh, a one-income household, so twenty-two thousand a year is all that's coming in. And while she's very much drawn to the emotional value of doing this, she doesn't think she can afford to do it. Now, you're not going to be left out of pocket, are you? No, you're not. I suppose one of the supports that's provided by Tusla is an allowance to meet the needs of the child. For um, children who are over 12, that allowance is 352 a week. Um, obviously, that no child takes that amount of money to, to raise on a weekly basis. But it means with that allowance, you can ensure that the child gets everything they need without being out of pocket yourself. Um, and all children in the care system also have their own medical card and the carers are entitled to the child benefits as well. So financially, um, anyone who considers fostering will not be out of pocket. Um, and I suppose in addition to the emotional investment, training is provided all the way along. So people are upskilled um, through their fostering journey to meet the needs of the children that are placed in their care. 
I suppose the main thing to remember is you're not alone. You're in a team that has a child at the centre trying to make the best um, life options for that child. I want to give the final word back to you, Eric. Again, you've probably met a lot of people who have questions and who have wondered about doing it and so on. What final piece of advice would you leave us with? Uh, I think that's, as uh, Paul has said there, if, if you think that, that you might have uh, room in your home, but even more particularly room in your heart, uh, you know, to, to give to uh, one or more children, you know, to foster, I think that you should certainly make some inquiries and, uh, and go down the road of, of as Paul has said, the 116 weeks of, of assessment where you receive an awful lot of information. Uh, in our case, it's been extremely rewarding um, and uh, we all know, I think, or we are certainly aware of children out there who, through no fault of their own, are in circumstances where their birth parent may not be able to look after them. And it's very important that they do have um, a loving and caring environment uh, within which they can grow and reach their full, full potential in life. Um, it, it really is, is, is great. They do become part and parcel of, of your family uh, and you get to love them um, equally as, as well as, as your own children. It's, um, in, in our case, it's been very, very uh, rewarding. Paula, what are the next steps then for anybody who wants to investigate further? We have a free phone number. Um, it's 1-800-226-771. Um, people can go on to um, the TUSLA website, which is TUSLA dot fostering at tusla dot ie and um, we also have some uh, national information sessions that you can log into at www.fostering.ie and they're on the 1st and 2nd of March So and they're online. So if you wanted to just clue in um, to something like that and get more information, that's also there as well. And from the moment, I suppose, you make a call or make contact, your details will be taken and you will be responded to and you'll have a discussion with different professionals who are involved in the fostering system and you know just chat it through see will it work for you think it over do you know that there's nothing wrong in making that call because um you know if you can it'll help you decide this is for us or it's not for us um so ring that number or go online um it's 1-800-226-771 or tusla dot fostering at ie. paula and Eric, thank you both very much uh, for your time. And we will talk thank again. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Paula McAvoy of Tusla. Eric Shepherd is a foster carer from Burr. As Ashling Murphy's family and friends face life without her, the local music community is coming together soon to remember her, but also to raise money for a very worthy cause locally, the Offaly Domestic Violence Support Service. And to tell you more, I wanted to meet Attractor Brady, who is the chairperson of Killy Coltus, but she also has a very special connection to Ashling's musical identity and the fiddle very much associated with Ashling in everybody's memories. Attractor, good morning. Hello, Will, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. You were Ashling's first fiddle teacher, is that right? That's right, yes. She came to meet you when she was about five years old 
and she had a tiny little fiddle and the fiddle was still too big for her. She was five. She was as cute as a button. And how talented was she? She was extremely talented. She was actually gifted. And she had a huge interest in music. Um, her, her parents told me that she never left the fiddle out of her hands. She was always practising. I can honestly tell you that she never came to me without her tune learned or her technique correct. She was a really good student. And on top of that, she was always smiling. She, it was very obvious she loved what she was at. Well, that is the voice of a proud teacher as well, I think. So I tell us where this very, idea very came from. Tell us about this idea of a music marathon for Ashling. That's right, yeah. Um, a music marathon, we're going to run 23 hours of music, of session music for Irish traditional musicians among the coldest world and the coldest, the friends of coldest. 23 hours, one hour to commemorate a year of Ashling's life. So 23 hours, 23 years of hmm. Ashling's life. And the whole idea is to well, commemorate her in a, in a celebration um, to say that she was a beautiful person. She was a fantastic musician. And as you know, and as people have said before, music is a language when other words fail. And our best way to remember her is through our music. So if we can play for 23 hours and raise funds for a very worthy cause, then we'll have done a good job. The whole idea is to is that we will start at 12 p.m. at St. Patrick's Day during the parade. So we will have a float in the parade. We will go straight from there to our Chuck Kjol in Offaly Street in Tullamore. And we will be there from uh, after the parade until 11 o'clock on Friday the 18th of March. Non-stop. Now, um, we will be organising... I assume, by the way, each individual doesn't have to go non-stop. You'll be taking it in turns. Or will there be an ample supply of coffee? <laughs> Believe it or not, um, musicians have been known to play from the 23 hours non-stop, but we don't expect that right now because after the pandemic, we're all a little bit out of practice at that. And we'd all, we, mm. we, might want, we might want a little rest. We might want to get some food or, as you said, some coffee or something. Um, so we will have two-hour slots. We will be asking anchors, people to anchor every two-hour slot. So then everybody else can come in, but the anchors are to ensure the continuity of the music. And... The hardest slots for us to fill will be between 2 a.m. and 8 a.m. So anybody who plays music is welcome to come in to us or to contact us beforehand to um, put their names down to anchor one of those two-hour slots. Now, of course, we, are, we don't want to be ages. So there's children, young people and adults, all ages, um, all singers, musicians and dancers are very welcome. And I will say that you musicians the children will be very welcome in the afternoon and the evening time. I would not expect them to stay up all night. It would be very, very hard. Apart from the fact that you probably need a couple of thousand tunes to keep you going for all night. Um, and young <laughs> children, by their nature, yeah, you know, yes, by their yes. nature might not have a couple of thousand tunes. Um, but, they're, you know, we're, we're sending this invitation out to every branch in the county and every branch in the Midlands. Um, people are really welcome to come in and, and play for us. Now, we will have buckets there. We'll have buckets during the parade as well. We'll be doing a collection for the ODVSS. And uh, we also have a GoFundMe page set up, and that's going very well at the moment. Our whole idea is to support off domestic violence support services. And we know, of course, that you know very often people just think of the female um, victims, but we know also that there can be male victims as well. So let's Indeed, not forget yes. that it's 
awfully... Um, ODVSS provides support to all, indeed. To all, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They also Attractor. provide... Um, yes. We're, we're out of time. I want to oh, wish okay. you the best. I think it's a wonderful idea, and we will be hearing more about it as we get closer to St. Patrick's Day. Thank you very much for taking our call. Thank you, Will, and good day to you. Good morning. How do you fancy going to see Sharon Shannon in concert, along with Mary Coughlin, and along with Francis Black in Tullamore this coming Friday? Well, with thanks to St. Kieran's Nursing Home in Rathcabin, which is a nursing home that prides itself on its personalised care to each individual resident. They would love you to go on and have a fantastic night out. And Sharon Shannon, Mary Coughlin and Francis Black will appear in the Tullamore Court Hotel for the first time in two years. So it's a fantastic occasion. How do you win? I'll tell you after the 11 o'clock news. Now, coming up in this hour... Hypothermia. Dr. Deirdre Ford says it's a very serious condition that actually occurs more often than you would think. And especially as we're getting into longer evenings, but the cold weather still hasn't left us. What do you do if somebody arrives on your doorstep and they're not in the best of shape? And a little bit later... The latest science on COVID-19 should be worrying to gentlemen because they've found that in the aftermath of infection, sperm counts are reduced. What damage does it do to your nether regions? We will be finding out before 12. More serious business, though, first. The developments of the last 24 hours on the Ukrainian border with Russia have seen tanks and troops sent into areas that Russian President Vladimir Putin now describes as independent people's republics. Now, there's a long history here. History goes back centuries, in fact, as to the identity of Ukraine, how modern Ukraine was formed. But the most relevant chapter certainly is in the last seven, eight years since the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent civil war and unrest in two provinces, which arguably now are Moscow-controlled territories. Putin says those troops are there for peacekeeping duties. How will the West respond to this? Well, a little later we'll be hearing from a former foreign affairs minister who will give you the diplomatic analysis. Let's first, though, pick the brain of a former member of the Defence Forces, Cottle Berry is an independent TD for Kildare South. Deputy Berry, good morning. Good morning, Will. So what tactics, in your opinion, is Vladimir Putin deploying here? Is it a false flag operation? Yeah, very much so. As you quite rightly outlined, Will, there's been a lot of activity in the last 24 hours. So first of all, uh, Russia recognised the bogus independence of two breakaway regions in Ukraine. And 
he deployed what he described as a peacekeeping force in there, but I think we, we all know that the, the true, um, I suppose, the reason for, for the deployment. Secondly, there was a, a meeting at the UN Security Council last night while we were asleep. Uh, ironically, Russia is actually chairing as president of the Security Council at the moment. They also have a veto, so there was no UN Security Council resolution. And then this morning, a lot of EU capitals are in uh, telephone conversations in relation to what particular sanctions and measures they're going to slap on Russia uh, this afternoon when the foreign ministers, including our own minister, Kovli, meet in Paris. So very interesting days ahead, and I think it's going to get uh, worse in the short term, unfortunately. What do you mean by that? Is he going to stop at these territories, or will he march on to Kiev, in your view? Yeah, so likely the latter. So currently Russia is in de facto or in actual control of about 8% of Ukrainian territory. He's likely to get, wants to get up towards 50% there. So I think over the next few days you're going to have a much more deeper and much more uh, wider uh, operation, military operation around Ukraine. So the, the Russian military has deployed about three quarters of their entire army uh, in and around Ukraine, about 50 kilometers from the border. So you don't do that unless you have uh, no specific intent. So I think before the week is out, unfortunately for the Ukrainian people, uh, there's going to be most likely uh, a more serious offensive operation, much broader in scale uh, and in depth. Now that being said, while Ukraine may not have the numbers in its army that Russia has, it, it's not exactly um, ill-equipped. It, it has means to try and resist. So how do you read what they're likely to do? They'll do their very best, Will. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have the state-of-the-art weaponry that uh, the Russian military actually has. So what, what the Russians have in, in massive quantities are cruise missiles, and they will have air supremacy, and they also have a large portion of their fleet in the Black Sea at the moment. So I would expect the Russians to use that uh, very, very effectively uh, later on this week. So they'll probably begin with a major cyber attack just to paralyse the, the U Ukrainian government system and then they'll probably launch a, a volley of cruise missiles and, and aircraft to take out their command and control, their air defence systems and any aircraft they have on the ground. And then maybe 24 or 48 hours later, they might uh, launch the, the ground offensive and try and soften up whatever, whatever people are left. So unfortunately, to answer your question, while the numbers are significant in the Ukrainian military, they wouldn't have the same level of cohesion. They wouldn't have the same level of battle hardiness. And they certainly don't have the same level of uh, sophistication from, from a weaponry point of view that the Russian military have. So it's a, a very one-sided contest, unfortunately. There has been some suggestion that those close to Putin don't believe the conflict would be in their interests if he tries to take Ukraine as a whole. Would that be a fair analysis given the likely response from the West? Uh, absolutely. So if you look at the, the body language of the security conference that he held on TV yesterday in Moscow, uh, his intelligence service uh, people and his generals were less than enthused uh, by what he wanted to do. So so Putin was a little bit isolated. And you, if you look at what he was trying to say, it was as though he was on the solar on himself. Um, but again, this is not a, a democratic uh, country like we have here, that the usual checks and balances that we take for granted in this country does not apply to Russia. It's an authoritarian regime and Putin has absolute authority to do whatever he wishes. And by judging by his actions over the last 24 hours, he's, he's not afraid to flex his muscles in that regard. So if you were across the table from him,
what message would you send today? So first of all, it's the obvious that his actions over the last 24 hours are completely unacceptable, that he should be uh, recognising the territorial independence, uh, the integrity and the sovereignty of, of Ukraine. And because he hasn't, then there's going to be major consequences. And the consequences have to be absolutely targeted, particularly in relation to his personal wealth uh, in Europe and around the world. And the economic sanctions that are going to be slapped on Moscow uh, this afternoon have to be absolutely significant. My concern, of course, is Russia will probably slap counter sanctions on the international community then from an energy point of view, from a cyber attack point of view and from a refugee point of view. So if there is a major conflict or a more significant conflict um, breaking out in, in Ukraine before this week is out, you would expect a large number of, of refugees to be moving westwards into the European Union. Again, that's precisely what Putin wants. He would like to destabilise the European Union and, and weaponise refugees accordingly. So to answer your question, I would be absolutely clear that it's completely unacceptable and be very, very clear in relation to the consequences. And the consequences have to be severe and unprecedented from that point of view. Mm. And he is likely to hit back and suggest, for instance, that in those regions of Ukraine that he at least initially has sent troops to, there's a high population of ethnic Russians, those who are loyal to Moscow rather than to Kiev. He's going to talk about Gazprom and other Russian companies that supply, as you've said, energy to Europe. So it's not exactly that he's playing with an empty hand. Right, and what this will mean for Ireland, obviously we're, we're devastated from a humanitarian point of view and what's happening and about to happen uh, to the Ukrainian people. But you'll probably notice over the next 24 or 48 hours that the, the price of fuel at the pumps will, will probably go up uh, even more. Uh, there may or may not be uh, cyber attacks against Irish critical infrastructure. Um, and I guess, thirdly, if there is a, a wider conflict, there'll be more refugees in the European Union and Ireland might be expected to take on board some of that. So that will probably overload our, our refugee um, system here in Ireland as well. Um, so they're, they're, they're the issues at play. And we also have an embassy in, in Kiev. We have an Irish embassy in Kiev that was only opened about eight months ago. They're currently in location, so we have to probably look at an extraction contingency plan from that point of view. And as you're probably aware, there's a, a couple of dozen Irish uh, couples and, and, and parents who have uh, they're availing of surrogacy services in Ukraine at the moment and obviously there's, there's an issue from that point of view if there's a question mark over, over conflict in the region. Mm. And those Russian ships that were floating above those undersea cables between Europe and America, have they gone away? Yeah, they've moved into the Black Sea so there's a large uh, amphibious fleet uh, of Russian origin in the Black Sea at the moment and uh, as you mentioned earlier it's, it's likely that Russia will try and claim up to over 50% of Ukrainian territory for the next few days, they would probably go and try and seize Kiev. Um, and there is a river called the Dnieper River, which is basically Ukraine's version of the, the River Shannon. It divides, divides the country into east and west. Most likely, Russia will try and deploy up to the, the Dnieper River, but they'll also try and seize the entire coastline as well and make Ukraine a landlocked country. So to answer your question, the, the ships that were off the Irish coast about 10, 14 days ago, they're now in the Black Sea and they're preparing for a likely amphibious operation, which will probably mean that, that Russia will probably try and claim the, the port of, of Odessa, which is Ukrainian, and also seize the entire coastline as well, um, which is obviously will have massive implications from a territorial integrity, but also from an economic point of view from what's left of Ukraine in, in a few days' time. Cahill Berry, thank you for your analysis. We'll talk again. 
Thanks very much, Will. And uh, hopefully we'll have better news. Deputy Cottleberry. Indeed, Deputy Cottleberry is a independent TD for Kildare South. He's based in Port Arlington. Now, still on the agenda this morning, uh, we, we've, you've heard the military side of the analysis, but from a diplomatic point of view, we'll be asking a foreign affairs minister, a former foreign affairs minister, how he would handle this situation, what is likely to happen here, since, as Cottleberry predicts, there will be an increase in the price you pay at the fuel pumps, perhaps in the next 24 to 48 hours. What else should you expect as the fallout from this action continues? Health Matters with Dr Deirdre Ford, though, is next in around 10 minutes. Let's see what you're agreeing or disagreeing with. Hilda asks, did he just say one of the big problems for Ireland would be being asked to take in refugees as opposed to people having to be forced to flee their homes in the first place. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I think Hilda, in the round, what he was saying is obviously that's going to be uh, a humanitarian disaster. On the economic side of it, what Mr. Putin will hit back with is, yes, there will be costs associated with a refugee crisis. There will also be costs associated with any extra charges he applies to Russian oil and gas reserves. Um, on text, Will, Mr. Berry rightly does not recognise the Russian-planted regions of Ukraine, which was carried out by Soviet authorities, but what about the British-planted region of Northern Ireland, the six counties? Does he sign up for that? Hypocrisy, says a listener here. Now, on other stories, Will, I heard Deputy Robert Troy interviewed lately regarding the mandatory wearing of face masks and that now being removed. His opinion on that is irrelevant. What I want to know of him and others in government is what have they done and what do they propose to do regarding the cost of insurance? Avoid the phrase shop around. They need to... Uh, get off their butts and not go around the globe for St. Patrick's Day. Deal with issues at home first. Regarding Phil Hogan, the now former EU commissioner, who feels aggrieved and has given several interviews this week after the Golfgate trial ended with all charges dropped, Mr. Hogan says uh, that he should be felt sorry for well, he's just a greedy politician and a may fainer, says Brian in Athlone. Did he not drive all over the countryside at the time? Some neck. Thanks, Brian. And let's go back to WhatsApp. Teresa, on the question of foster carers. Well, how come strangers can foster and get paid, she asks, but when grandparents have to take in their grandchildren to rear them, they don't get that sort of support. They receive a lot less, actually, only half. And they're not allowed to foster their grandchildren. Why is that? And a final message, this from Mick in Kildare, who wants to give out to Offaly County Council. If you're in the roads department, listen up, he says. He feels the council should be fined for the condition the roads are in. He often travels the road from Clombalogue to Edenderry and finds it in a deplorable state. Can't disagree there, Mick. Know that road well. And either councillors should be sacked 
or people should stop paying their car tax, their house tax, their carbon tax. Somebody has to be held accountable, he says. Offaly County Council wasted a lot of money taking up what was a perfectly good footpath and making it wider in Eden Derry, and thus depriving the town of many, many parking spaces. By the way, the amount of dog poo along that street is criminal, and there should be a parking warden or a dog warden present to monitor that. So thanks, Mick. Appreciate your messages. You're very welcome to on 083 30 10 103, text and WhatsApp, powered by Lamb Brothers Toyota in Tullamore. For the next 25 minutes, let's review health matters with Dr. D, Dr. Deirdre Ford from Kayla Medical in Athlone. Deirdre, how are you? I'm very well, Will. Good morning to you. I'm wondering, is it very, very cold in Athlone? Why is hypothermia on the agenda today? I decided to actually look at this now that we are in the middle of winter, I suppose. And with all the storms that we've just had in the past week, it looks like there could be some snow on the way. So that's what I was looking at. Um, We need to actually, yeah, we actually need to have a look at hypothermia. Um, And hypothermia can happen during the winter, obviously, if you're cold, but it can also happen during the summer if you suddenly find yourself. after falling into a lake or something like that. So hypothermia can, uh, it's a very serious condition and it would be uh, very useful if people knew the first aid um, treatment of it. So a little bit of science background. What regulates your body temperature? Why are we all there, thereabouts 36 degrees? So there is, in the brain, you've got um, the hypothalamus and this actually regulates your body temperature. Um, And when somebody is actually exposed to the cold like that, the hypothalamus reacts by trying to uh, increase your body temperature and it starts to increase your uh, muscle tone and that then causes shivering. So when you start to shiver, that's the very, very first response um, of the hypothalamus reacting to that. And if you look also, well, you know, when people get cold, they start to get the goosebumps then and the hair stands on the hair stands on your arms. What happens there is that the uh, the base of the hair follicles is trapping warm air. So it's actually causing a layer of um, what would you call it? Um, warm air, literally a layer, a very, very thin layer um, around your body. So that's the very first reaction that you're going to get. Um, so, yeah, when your body temperature gets to about, you know, 32 to 35 degrees, our normal body temperatures is 36, 37 degrees. So when you get to 32 to 35 degrees, everything starts to um, it, it's it's mild hypothermia at that stage. So what you find is that your skin is going to get very pale and the blood vessels try to constrict to um, make sure that the essential blood flow goes to the vital organs such as the brain and to the kidneys and to the heart. So you start to get tired and you mightn't be able to think clearly. Your breathing will become a little bit more rapid and your heart will actually become a little bit faster because everything, your, your blood pressure is increasing now due to the constricted blood vessel. So that's the very first stage of mild hypothermia when your body temperature reaches 32 to 35 degrees. So how do you deal with it? If let's say, um, 
over the next couple of days we get very low temperatures somebody is outside they end up outside maybe for longer than planned they come back in and you've cause for alarm mm-hmm. is it just a case of wrapping blankets around them or is there a bit more to it so the first thing to do anyway is to is to move them to to a dry place and um if they're if they're obviously outside you bring them inside away from the elements uh, if they have wet clothing on, take off the wet clothing. Um, then you can cover the person with any available dry layers of, of towels or blankets that you have, um, or even an electric blanket. This is for mild hypothermia. And in severe cases, obviously, we've seen it in the movies where, you know, somebody has been in the water and um, both people are stripped off literally to make that skin to skin contact to try and warm up another individual. If the person is actually still conscious, give them warm a, a warm drink um, to have and avoid moving them too much. Just be, you know, because we don't know if they're gone into sort of the next stage of moderate hypothermia. So if you move them around too much, you could actually spark some abnormal heart, heart rhythms, which you don't want to do. Will you recognize yourself that you're hypothermic? You certainly, well, you will. The first thing really will is that everything is going to get cold. Your hands are going to get cold. Your blood vessels are starting to constrict. You might notice that the skin is becoming pale, maybe a little bit blue at the fingertips. Um, You uh, are feeling very tired and you might have difficulty um, communicating. You might start to urinate a little bit more. You could start to feel very nauseated. Um, So there they are the initial symptoms then of um, hypothermia. Hmm. I just noticed one of the rather paradoxical symptoms is that a person might undress. They might remove their clothes. This is all part of lack of judgment. Well, this is where um, the blood flow to the brain now is, is becoming impaired. So it's like, you know, when you consider, say, early dementia, that as well, where where the brain has been affected, you're going to have sort of inappropriate type um, behavior. So they'll start doing things like that, you know, not thinking clearly, lack of judgment. Um, so erratic type behavior, including taking off your clothes. So preventing it then, if, okay, you're going outside, the obvious one is wrap up. Again, mm-hmm. what else would you do? So if you're, well, if you're going out, it's very, it's very handy, especially during the winter. You really, really, if you're going out and you're in a car, you really ought to have some sort of a a car survival kit. Um, I I saw it there on the, on the news there a couple of weeks ago where there were people trapped in cars somewhere in um, Eastern Europe, I think, um, in, in the snow. Um, And I think there were some fatalities there because of hypothermia. But if you're going out um, and you know that it's going to be cold or there's potential snow, you know, bring some, make sure you've got blankets in the car and make sure you've got maybe some non-perishable food there and always bring extra clothing with you to keep dry and, and also have a container of water because you don't know when you're actually going to need it. Mindful as well that in this age of very high energy costs, there are people, unfortunately, choosing between eating and heating. That's and right. in your house, especially over the next few days, it could potentially get very, very cold. So mm-hmm. shutting off mm-hmm. the drafts, trying to right. conserve heat as best you can, that becomes vital. Mm-hmm. That becomes very vital. So wherever you can, close over the drafts, put 
put towels, rolled up towels um, under, you know, at the, at the base of the doors to try and keep out drafts. Um, you know, make sure you've got proper uh, smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms as well that are actually working. And wear multiple layers of clothes. If you are in a situation where you um, are going to be cold and you have to choose between feeding or heating and you choose to feed, then you're going to have to actually wrap up and wrap up and drink uh, warm drinks. We have a lot of questions to get through. I'm going to forewarn you of this next one because it is a difficult one as far as parents are concerned, at least. When you have a very fussy eater on your hands and you need to try and diversify their palate a bit so that they have more nutritious meals, how do you have that conversation? Deirdre, have a think about that. We'll be back Mm -hmm. with that and more questions after these. Dr. Deirdre Ford is here from Kayla Medical in Athlone for the next 10 minutes or so. So fire in your question on 083 30 10 103. Nine-year-old child, Deirdre, who will only eat one slice of dry bread, handful of chips, glass of milk. Nothing else will she accept. Very fussy eater, always was. Is quite underweight and pale but her blood show she's okay. Obviously, this parent is concerned, and they're wondering what approach should they take. It's every parent's nightmare, really. And, you know, it's funny that that lady just mentions about about the bread. My own brother at the same, he was probably the same age. His staple diet was burnt toast. It had to be black burnt Ooh. toast put into the fridge for a half an hour then taken out and smothered with butter. That was it. He ate nothing else. Um, wow. Yeah, my own son. How did he turn own... out? Oh, he is a, he is a, a chef nearly. At the... No, he's not. He he turned out very well and he loves to cook. Loves to cook. Um, my own son, I remember he was eight and he refused to eat bread or uh, potatoes, anything like that. I didn't know how I was going to get carbohydrates into him. So I started making pancakes at night time for him. And that tradition still goes on in that household. They are now in their <laughs> 30s and they still make pancakes. Anyway, right. so, you know, there's there's ways around it. You know, the, the, the child who won't, you're trying to get, so maybe with that lady, try, try the pancakes. See, will they get into pancakes? At least you're going to get some eggs in there and you're going to maybe put some sort of a different spread on you know maybe uh, bananas or that you've got to try something different um and you know if she's eating so she's eating an awful lot of that child is eating an awful lot of carbohydrates you're going to have to try and get something else in so if it's going to be bread you're going to have to try and introduce a different taste there or a different texture um we can't bribe we can't force feed um they will over time you know um come to enjoy foods that they want you know i wonder what it's like for her in school or him in school you know when it comes to lunches and that um what do they eat you know it's 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 trial and error with all of these things there's very good information out there you know safe food ireland have um have some recipes there for the fussy eater as well so maybe go and have a look there well my two are downstairs at the moment isabel is eight and she will eat anything she's great 
very adventurous palate. William, on the other hand, he's nearly seven. And chips, chicken nuggets, sausages, oh, and chocolate pillows. He loves chocolate pillows. But, you know, anything green, anything unusual, and by that I mean even, you know, red sauce, brown sauce, <laughs> he just won't go for it. Won't go for it, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, children it's the are lack different. of greens they... that concerns me, though. The lack of greens. Okay, so uh, try try um mine mine were reared on broccoli thankfully but um try say broccoli that might be uh, just slightly slightly uh just basically blanched so it's nice and green and it's crunchy um celery you know try it in a dip or something like that it's all as i said we'll trial and error mm. okay tom is next so tom you have a trapped nerve in your back the effect of which radiates down to your hip. This is quite agonising. Sciatica is the term that it has been given. And he's wondering, is there maybe an injection or any other approach to killing off this pain? The pain is the big problem. Pain is the big problem, yeah. So obviously, if there's something pressing on that nerve, that's obviously that's obviously the issue there. Um, I presume an MRI has been done, and to see how far you know that disc is, or or is the disc likely to go back in again? Physiotherapy is the first thing to do. Um, if you can at all, try and keep active. Uh, keep active. But for a lot of people, um. You know, injections at that stage may or may not may or may not work. It's 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 a mechanical thing, so you've got to relieve the pressure off the nerve. So it, that uh, patient needs more investigation, possibly, to see does he need to see a neurosurgeon uh, where the disc can be actually just scraped off. It's called um, a microdiscectomy. I have been under the knife four times for one such um, for one such condition, um, but micro me then it's where they literally just shave away the bit of the uh, disc that's coming out and that relieves the pain. Next is from Margaret in Mullingar who has chillblains in her hands and in her feet and is looking for a remedy. Chillblains, Deirdre? Gosh, I haven't seen chillblains since I was a child. Um, they're very, very painful. You know, they're like little those little blisters. She really needs to, you know, they're very burning as well. So something soothing and cold. Um, make sure that her feet are warm um, at all times. Maybe wear, you know, socks in bed at night time. But as I said, it's a long time since I've seen chillblains. Now, I remember reading at one point in the pandemic, some people experienced chillblains as a side effect of COVID. Well, that's interesting. I know that um, some young children used to present with those skin conditions. So that would have been certainly in the younger child. It's quite rare, but it would have been one of the ones that uh, children would have presented with these sort of um, unusual uh, skin conditions in the in the extremities. All right, we'll take uh, one more. A listener is suffering with chronic gastritis. Is there anything Deirdre can recommend? I suppose an explainer first. What is chronic gastritis, Deirdre? So gastritis, anything with the nitis is usually inflammation. So it's inflammation of the of the lining of the, of the stomach. So it's 
it is very painful. You know, you'll present with with really bad pain in the middle of your tummy. It might be going into your back. You might get off. So, you know, heartburn with it. Um, so basically, you know, avoid what's causing the chronic gastritis, alcohol, cigarettes, spicy foods, um, uh, lifestyle measures. Make sure that your food has, you know, milky based food. Make sure you drink loads of milk. Over-the-counter um, remedies, Gavazon liquid is really, really good. You get over-the-counter Nexium 20 milligrams. Sometimes that's not enough to actually deal with the gastritis. But if you've got a chronic gastritis, make sure that that has actually been investigated with um, um, gastroscopy and that biopsies and that have been taken to see where it, uh, where that patient is in all of this. Deirdre, we're out of time. Good few questions we didn't get around to. One here from Adele that you might think about for the next occasion you're with us. Panic attacks and how to deal with them and how to move on afterwards and try and get no more of them. Um, But that's for the next occasion. Deirdre Ford, thank you. My pleasure, Will. Good morning. You'll find her at Kayla Medical in Athlone. Good morning. Now, still to come today, 1 in 20 group water supplies contain E. coli. That's a nasty bug you don't want to drink. The Environmental Protection Agency is here from half eleven to explain what they're doing about it. Also, Sam Keeley and Neve Algar are among the Midlands stars nominated for the Irish Film and Television Awards. We'll be doing a deeper dive into those in around 20 minutes' time. As you've heard in the news, oil prices have surged close to dollars a barrel as in Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin has sent troops across the border into what he as independent people's republics east of the country. Now, there is a very, very long history here, centuries of history, ultimately, uh, involving Russia and, and that territory. And more recent history from 2014, from the annexation of Crimea. That is the chapter we're focusing on now, and that is an event that took place while Charlie Flanagan was around the cabinet table. He is a former foreign affairs minister. Uh, Deputy Flanagan, good morning. Hello, Will. How are you? You would have had uh, diplomatic experience dealing with many, many different nationalities and different cultures. What are the Russians like to deal with? Well, they're very difficult. Uh, I did hear the Russian ambassador this morning on another channel. Uh, would have met him on a number of occasions, uh, and I suppose it's fair to say, in in political parlance, he's he's, uh, he's playing the party line. Uh, he's attempting to put a good face on what is a very very difficult and challenging situation. That is uh, the current Russian uh, invasion into Ukraine, uh, and it's done under a pretext as these things generally are, uh, where where President Putin has said that. Uh, there was a need for Russian troops to go in in order to keep the peace, uh, in order to uh, respond to people who requested. Uh, but of course, what we're seeing here uh, is a deliberate, a deliberate violation uh, of the territorial integrity of Ukraine. Uh, we're seeing a deliberate breach of international law. We're seeing a deliberate breach of the Minsk Agreement, which was agreed between France and Germany on the one hand, uh, Ukraine and Russia on the other hand. Uh, And I don't think uh, that attempting to put uh, a brave face on it actually cuts the muster. 
uh, it's a serious situation and Ireland of course along with other EU colleagues uh, will be keeping a very close eye on the situation and also looking at sanctions and how we can uh, put economic sanctions to bear uh, against the Russians at this time. Do we have very many cards to play economically, though, given that Mr. Putin and Russia control vast gas reserves, oil reserves, energy that we are very reliant on? Yeah, well, by we, I, 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 I uh, assume you mean Ireland. Uh, I, in response to that, you could and say, Europe well, more widely, yes. Y- y- yes, Europe more widely, uh, definitely. Uh, insofar as we can be looking at sanctions. Uh, one one uh, piece of low-hanging fruit, for example, would be the European Champions League final, uh, which is to be played in May in St. Petersburg. Uh, I believe that should be switched. Uh, it should be switched to um, another European capital, and I think it's easily done at this stage before advancement place. Uh, what governments are doing, uh, what's happening this morning is that EU ministers are looking at a range of economic sanctions. Uh, and of course, we in Ireland are not really, uh, we're not really immune from the effect of sanctions, Will, because uh, we import some coal from Russia. Uh, we, we, we trade with Russia in the aviation industry. Uh, leasing of planes, uh, much work in the aviation. Uh, So uh, obviously what Europe has got to do is to uh, engage in a series of targeted sanctions, intensification of sanctions, because, you know, we're not going to uh, engage in battle. Uh, Ireland is a neutral country. We're not going to send troops or ammunition to Ukraine. We don't do that. What we do with Ukraine, and this is where, again, we play an important role as a small country, uh, we provide assistance and expertise in the area of law reform, in the area of judicial reform, in the area of political reform, in the area of economic reform. We give our expertise and we also give some money. There are about 3,000 Ukrainians in Ireland. met some of them recently. They're, they're based um, in every part of the country. They come here uh, to, to um, earn a living. Uh, there aren't as many Irish people in Ukraine. Numbers are smaller, but there are some who are married to Ukrainian citizens who work in Kiev and other places. Uh, I visited Kiev a number of times when I was Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and uh, what's at stake here is... A, a feeling on the part of Russia that it needs to expand its influence and in territories like what it did uh, after the Second World War uh, in terms of the Warsaw Pact countries or the Russian influence across what was then Soviet Eastern Europe. Um, those days are over because Ukraine, Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania Uh, former Soviet republics are now independent and they wish to remain independent because their people want them to be independent and that's really at the heart uh, of the dispute at the moment. But I suppose you don't have to like Mr Putin or excuse his belligerence towards Ukraine in any way to perhaps understand some unease on the Russian side when uh, going back to Napoleon, going back to Hitler... Uh, They have been attacked from the West and NATO since 1990 has encroached closer and closer to their borders, albeit at the invitation of sovereign countries. How do you diffuse those Russian nerves? Well, that may be a fact, but it's not the full story because NATO 
is not in the business of recruiting new members. NATO is not in the business of aggression or attacking uh, anybody. Uh, any state who joins NATO or, uh, uh, does so uh, in a voluntary capacity because their people want them to do that. Ireland is not a member of NATO, and I don't believe the Irish people would want us to be a member of NATO. So any states that join NATO uh, in Europe, uh, and of course USA and Canada, uh, people want that because the people of this area and the people of Ukraine and the people of the former Eastern Europe, they see the West as offering a better way of life than Moscow. And that is a fact of life in 2022. And that's something really that President Putin has not grappled with or something that President Putin doesn't actually agree with. So, so, so what we need to do now is, you know, accept the will of the people, and work with states like Ukraine. And that's what Ireland is doing. That's what the European Union is doing. But now, since Russia has decided to place its troops in eastern Ukraine, it has challenged and it's in breach of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, then Europe must act. And what Europe will do is introduce targeted economic sanctions, and we will, we will hit Russia uh, and Russian oligarchs and Russia, Russia business where it hurts in the pocket. Finally, and I put this question to another speaker earlier who was from a military background and you're from a diplomatic and a political background. If you were sitting across the table from Mr. Putin today, what would you say to him? Well, I would say to him that he needs to back down, uh, that there is only one aggressor here, uh, and the facts will actually bear out that the only aggressor in this dispute is, is Russia and President Putin. The Ukrainians have attacked nobody. The Ukrainians have, 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 have not warned anybody uh, against any form of military invasion. The Ukrainian people are the ones who are the victims here. They're the ones who have suffered. The territorial integrity of the independent country of Ukraine that has been recognized internationally and indeed has been recognized by Russia under the Minsk Agreement more recent times, but in particular by the Budapest Agreement or Budapest Convention of 1994, where Russia specifically recognized the territorial integrity and independence of Ukraine. And that has been threatened over the past few weeks, and it has been breached by the entry of Russian troops yesterday and this morning. Uh, so there's only one aggressor here, and that squarely and plainly is President Putin and Russia, and they're wrong. Charlie Flanagan, thank you for taking our call. Thank you, Will, as usual. Deputy Flanagan is the Fine Gael TD in Leash Offaly. He is a former Minister for Foreign Affairs. Sinead Hubble, I bet you he was dancing. He just wanted to listen to it for that reason, was he? It was absolutely brilliant, the dance moves here. You should have seen them, Will. You're missing out. Were they award-winning? They were. And if they did have a dance category at the IFTAs, Adam would be nominated for it. Sadly, they don't. No, they don't. So we'll have to concentrate instead, no disrespect, Adam, on Sam Keeley, on Neve Algar, on Garrett Daly. Tell us more. 
So yeah, the Midlands has been very well represented in the nominations for this year's IFTA Awards. Sam Keeley has been shortlisted for the lead actor in a drama for Kin, which is a Ganlang crime series on RTE. They've actually received 13 nominations in all and he's going up against his co-star Aidan Gillen, Aidan Gillen in that category. Excellent. Mm. And then Neve. So Neve's actually in the running for two uh, in two categories. So the lead actress in a film and the lead actress in a drama for her performances in Censor and Deceit. Now Censor is a film that um, looks as she plays Enid, a film censor who spends her days kind of watching and cutting and classifying scenes of violence in the mid 80s in Britain. And in Censor, she's um, the main character. Uh, This is based on a true story about a honey trap that became part of a police investigation in 1992. Right. Very dark subject matter, really. (laughs) They really are. And then uh, let's go on to uh, the most important guest because he, he's actually on the phone. Uh, Garrett Daly, good morning. Good morning, Well, So you have been nominated and congratulations. Tell us more. Yeah, well, we're delighted. You had me dancing there with the Bee Gees as well, actually. <laughs> good celebration. Um, yeah, we were nominated in the short film category with our documentary, uh, Nothing to Declare, produced as well by Martina McGlynn. And yeah, it's look, it's, a, it's the story of two boys that were stowaways to America in 1985, uh, Keith Byrne and Noel Murray, and they had made it all the way to New York. And we documented this where Keith and Noel tell their story. They, they recount the tale of how they actually did it in documentary form. And we're delighted. I mean, it was lovely news this morning to wake up to the fact that um, yeah, the film has been acknowledged and nominated in this category. It's, uh, it's really nice because obviously you want the best profile possible for for the film and for people to, to you know, want to see it. And I suppose a nomination like this is, is helpful because it just puts it out there for people and gets them aware of the film. And I suppose just that recognition as well is nice after all the, the hard work as well. So we're very pleased. So when is the big night and where is my invite? <laughs> well, I, I'm not too sure because it looks like they're probably doing a virtual event, first of all. Um, it's early March. I think March 12th they're talking about. And then I think they're going to have a physical event following that as well. I suppose, you know, you've a film industry have been quite nervous about where things were going to be. And like even with the Oscars and the likes, you know, there's a lot of debate around whether people need COVID certs and the, and, and the like. So people are only sort of getting back to normality and running these events. So I think if they were the same in terms of will they have a physical event, will they have a virtual event? So it looks like they're going with a virtual event first, followed by the physical event. So, yeah, we could organize your uh, your invite uh, for either. Excellent. Garrett, well done. Congratulations. Thanks, Will. Thanks very much. Now, Sinead, are you still there? I am. Now, there was a very important piece of scientific research that you were investigating earlier, (laughs) 
but it's not going to materialise for today's show. Is that right? No, it was something that you mentioned earlier on this morning because you were very concerned about happening to you. Um, involved shrinkage and um, you know so I've put in numerous calls to different medical experts all morning to see if we can sort out your little problem Will and um, nobody's available today to help you so you'll just have to to wait until tomorrow morning but we'll definitely have more information tomorrow morning. Well just to clarify Niall O'Keefe on breakfast happened to come across this study that suggested that if you're a gentleman and if you should contract COVID-19, that there may be some side effects that you might want to know about. And we are going to um, investigate further tomorrow. Yeah, this is well, actually, I can't speak from personal experience. No, this is something you said to me. You never mentioned Nile earlier on. You never mentioned this survey. Nothing. Well, I listened to The Breakfast Show, so I heard it. <laughs> Thanks, Sinead. Goodbye. It is half past 11. Next on Midlands 103, we will be looking at your water supply because if you're in a private scheme, there could be E. coli there, a 1 in 20 chance. The Environmental Protection Agency is on the case and they're next. Now, it is coming up on 25 to 12. Still time to win tickets to Sharon Shannon. Mary Coughlin and Francis Black appearing in the Tullamore Court Hotel this Friday. And those tickets come compliments of St. Kieran's Nursing Home. And they're located in Burr, or Rathcabin to be precise. So 083 30 10 103 is the Midlands 103 text line. Do let me know who you are and where you're listening. And I might just draw your name at random. Now... The Environmental Protection Agency has studied private water schemes all over the country and has discovered in around 20, uh, excuse me, one in 20 supplies that there is a risk of E. coli. That's around 5%. So what shall be done to correct this? Let's find out a little bit more. Uh, from the Environmental Protection Agency and we're joined by Emer Cooney who is on the EPA's drinking water team. Emer, good morning. Good morning. So, if E. coli is present, remind us why that's a concern. So, our report today, um, we're fo- in our report today, we're focusing on private supplies, as you mentioned there, and by that we mean private group schemes which are set up by community groups They get their water from a local source. They manage the treatment and distribution of that water to the scheme members. And we're also talking about small private supplies, which are businesses or commercial activities which have their own well or spring, basically their own supply that they use in their business. And they may supply that water to customers, um, service members or staff members. So they're the two types of supply we're talking about today. And as you mentioned, um, E. coli was found in 1 in 20 of those supplies back in 2020. Now, the concern about that, I suppose, is that E. coli is a bacteria which can cause serious gastrointestinal illness. um, And um, in some cases, there's a very severe form of it which can cause kidney failure. So obviously, we don't want to see bacteria in our water supplies. um, But how does it get there? Um, It can get there because the water supply itself can be contaminated. Um, Contamination can happen in a number of ways. Um, You can have farm animals getting into the source and contaminating it. If you've got um, 
a surface water source, you know, if your water comes from a river or a lake or if your well isn't properly protected or properly constructed, if you get some heavy rain, you can get agricultural runoff going into the the water source or um, in the case of wells in particular, it could be located near a septic tank Um, and that could be the the source of the contamination. But um, I suppose obviously none of us want to see that sort of contamination in our water supplies and that's why we're highlighting that today. Um, in our report and also you know, letting people know what they need to do if they are in charge of a water supply. Are the standards for a private scheme as exacting as they are for public schemes? So by public schemes there, I take it you're referring to Irish Water. Um, yeah, and, the main, um, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, the main supplies. Um, so the standards are the exact same. We have drinking water regulations um, that, and the, the exact same limits and standards apply um, across the board for all water supplies. Um, so really, you know, we're saying the quality of water in private supplies isn't as good as it, good as it should be. Um, we have often also said, and it remains true, that the pri- quality in private supplies isn't as good as it is in public supplies. Now, obviously, in public supplies, Irish Water have an advantage in the sense that, um, you know, they have the more capital funding, they have mm. the infrastructure in place, they have the expertise, they can hire engineers. You, you know, there's, um, that's their job, um, is to make sure that the water they supply is good quality. Um, in private group schemes, it's somewhat similar in the sense that there will be a group or a committee whose job it is, um, though many of them are volunteers, you know, but it is their, their responsibility to make sure the water they're supplying is safe to drink. A greater concern, I suppose, is small private supplies because we're talking here about, um, you know, hotels, pubs, food businesses, national schools, creches, nursing homes, um, B&Bs, so, you know, um, many different types of establishment that are getting their own water from a well and providing it to their customers and staff and they may not even realise that they are legally a water supplier and that they have legal responsibilities. Um, so it's very important for people to, you know, that are running businesses in rural areas where they know they're not on the mains to make sure that they contact their local authority, make sure they're on the local authority register in order to get monitored every year um, and that they also take any steps necessary to protect their water source and treat it if necessary. So if they're not on that register, they're not being monitored then? Yeah, absolutely. Unless they're taking some samples themselves, but they really do need to make sure they're on the local authorities register. Um, because even if you are in the register in some cases, we like we did find in 2020, over a quarter of those small private supplies weren't monitored. Now that's that was largely due to COVID, um, you know, in previous years, that figure has been far lower. But it is something we need to highlight again, the importance of making sure a supply is on the local authority register so the local authority knows about it and gets that supply onto its sampling mm. and monitoring programme. And then the local authority... There is a business, you know, and for instance, you mentioned a nursing home, and obviously yeah. health is foremost in the mind. Are they obliged to register? Yeah, so they, they absolutely are. They need to get on that register and make sure that the local authorities have them included on the sampling programme. And I suppose our concern would be where those um, particular types of supply where the manager or owner of, of as you mentioned, a nursing home, school, creche, food business or whatever, that they realise that they have that legal responsibility in the first place. So part of what we try to do with these reports is just to raise that awareness 
Um, and also for the public to know that, you know, if you're going down, um, if you're going your holidays to, um, you know, a campsite or a B&B or a hotel, um, that, you know, it, it's important to, to check out whether the water there is safe to drink. I, I mean, it is going to be in the vast majority of cases. Um, but really, we want to see 100% compliance. You know, we're, we're looking at 95% compliance in 2020. And a lot of people might say, well, 95 is very good. You know, what more could you ask for? But you don't want to be the person drinking the water from <clears throat> one of the 5% of supplies that isn't no, indeed compliant, not. that did have E. coli. So, um, yes, yeah, I say we just want to raise that awareness. Now, there's about 1,700 small private supplies registered over the country. And... Um, to me, that seems low. <laughs> you know, to me, it seems quite likely that there will be far more businesses out there um, that um, may be on a water supply. And often, I, I think in Ireland, you know, or maybe everywhere, you know, we turn on the tap, and as long as water is coming out, um, yes, coming out of the tap, we don't necessarily, content. yeah, we don't necessarily think, think too hard about where it's coming from. And you know, that's we're very fortunate that usually we have sufficient water. Um, and we don't have to think about it, but I suppose anyone who's um, the owner or manager of um, a rural business or a business, you know, where you're not on the mains, um, we would just appeal to you just to make sure that you are on the, the local authorities register and um, that you get your sampling and monitoring done every year and that you are confident then that the water you're providing to your customers and staff is safe to drink. And just a quick clarification on that. Domestic homes with their private wells, yeah. do they have to register? No, no. So um, household wells um, are exempt from the drinking water legislation, so they don't need to um, to register. They're not um, regulated in any way. But again... Okay. Still in their interest to do a test every now and again. Absolutely. We absolutely... The same, the same thing applies, really. If, you, if you're getting your water from your own well, make sure the well is properly protected, that farm animals aren't going near it, that you're not downstream from your neighbour's septic tank. Um, get a sample, get, send it off to a local lab. If um, you look up INAB, INAB.ie, you'll find out where there's labs that will test for drinking water. Um, get it checked out. In some, some cases we found, you know, the wells can be contaminated, but it's at a low level and people are, become accustomed to it. Um, but then you maybe have a visitor who gets sick, you know. Um, so it's really, you know, it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that their, their own well um, water is safe to drink as well. And we have a lot of information on our website, epa.ie, um, with regard to household wells, and anyone who uses any sort of a well can find information there um, on the proper protection of the well. And we definitely Back recommend to the anyone to have your schemes. At that. Then these private group yeah. schemes, and there are yeah. three hundred and eighty of which twenty were identified as having an issue. I'm just looking at a map of these areas, and okay, Knock in County Leash is the only one within these counties. Uh, well, Lura. Uh, just over the border, Tipperary. Mm. But there seems to be a pattern where they're more in the west of Ireland than any other part of the country. Is that significant for any reason? Um, yeah, I, I think, and if, if you look at the other map um, as well, it's the same sort of pattern. Um, and um, the, one of the main reasons for that, I suppose, is that in those parts of the country, the water is more likely to come from a river or a lake um, the water that's being used in those supplies rather than from a well. Um, ah. Brown water, yeah, so you get 
when you get water from a well, obviously it's coming from the ground and there's more protection for that water because it is underground. It's protected by layers of rock and soil and um, it's more likely to be clean from the outset. Whereas in parts of the country where the water is predominantly coming from a river or a lake, it's obviously the water is exposed to the elements. Um, if you get weather like we've had over the last few days, you know, really heavy rain, that's going to wash um you know, agriculture, you'll get agricultural runoff being washed into the river and the lake sources, um, you know, farm animals are more likely to be able to gain access um, to the, a river or a lake as well and contaminate it. So they are far more prone to contamination. Um, now, there's ways you can protect, um, up to protect those sources up to a point, like you can put in fencing to make sure animals can't get into um, I'd get down the riverbank or whatever but there's there's not a huge amount you could do about that sort of heavy rain we've had in the last few days and in those cases of it, situations it might be a case that you need better treatment um, on the on the water so you know you can't control the quality of, of your raw water but you can take steps such as disinfection to make sure that you deal with any contamination that might have got in Finally Emer. This is a 2020 report. Can we safely assume that by now most, if not all, of these issues will have been addressed in those wells identified or those um, group schemes identified? Yes. Yeah, so um, whenever so the local authorities do the, the sampling and the monitoring, as, as I mentioned, and when they get the results back then, they can see whether there's any issues. And what they would do then is follow up with the group scheme or the supplier to make sure that action is taken to resolve the issues. Um, and yeah, the, so the 2020 um, issues mostly will be closed out where there might be a longer term issue like, um, you know, the treatment plant might need to be upgraded. We have many supplies that are going through upgrade processes as well. But um, yeah, everything is followed up on. And, um, you know, while we would expect year on year, there, there are going to, we are going to see fails. The most important thing is that they are responded to and that whatever actions is required to take as quickly as possible to make sure that the water is safe to drink. Emer Cooney of the Environmental Protection Agency, thank you for talking to us. Thank you. It is just gone a quarter to 12. And in a moment, I'll tell you if you have just won a fantastic night out to see Sharon Shannon, Mary Coughlin and Francis Black perform at the Tullamore Court Hotel, compliments of St. Kieran's Nursing Home. If you haven't entered and you want those tickets, just send me a text telling me who you are and where you're listening. Text or WhatsApp 083 30 10 103 or indeed send a message through the Midlands 103 app. Earlier when Dr. D was here, a mum had asked us how to fix a child's diet when all they will eat is a slice of bread, dry, no butter, glass of milk and a few chips. And I don't know if that strikes a chord with you. It certainly did with me because Isabel and William are polar opposites. She will eat anything under the sun, very adventurous, loves to try new things. He will just have chicken nuggets, cheeky nuggets he calls them, and chips. And that's about it. Oh, and chocolate pillows. And when you think of a mixed diet and you should have lots of colours on the plate, lots of greens and oranges and so on, how do you try and persuade them to be a bit more adventurous? And listening to that is a lady who said, well, I was there, 
bought the T-shirt and came out the far side and her name is Linda Murphy in Portlaoise. Hiya, Linda. Hi, Will. How are you? Very well, thank you. Tell us what challenge you had and how you managed to overcome it. Well, the little boy, I mind, his name is Aaron and he's six. And he was just like your own little William. He wouldn't touch anything, only chicken nuggets and chips. And the frustrating part about it for himself and his man for me was he would just look at it and say, no, I don't like it. He wouldn't even try it. So we started off there on the veg line. We came across certain things in the supermarket. We'll say, now, he loves hash browns, we'll say, right? Now, mm. there's a strong roots range. They're in Super Value and Duns and all the supermarkets. And they have a, a courgette and a spinach hash brown. Now, as you know yourself, hash browns are, circ- are triangle in shape. These ones are circles. So we said to him one day, now we okay. have lovely new hash browns we're going to try and they're circles. Now we got the face and the look and the whole lot and the green colour. So I said to him one day then, now do you know what these are called? These are Hulk hash browns and the Hulk eats these <laughs> and he has big muscles and Aaron loves marbles, so, Marvel. So his eyes just lit up when he heard this. And we have this thing then where we do see how many prouds he gets in a day. Proud, I'm proud of you for stopping on your scooter. I'm proud of you for doing this. So if he was going to try this, he was going to get one of his prouds. And he tried it and he absolutely loved it. Now, he loves them. And there's, a, there's another hash brown in that range as well, Will, and it's cauliflower. Now, it's the very same on the outside, potato and all that. But just instead of potato and, and onion on the inside, it has cauliflower. And he tried that same thing and he loves it. So, so far, we're getting the spinach and courgette into him and we're getting cauliflower. That so, is genius. As I said to his man then, he absolutely, carrots is a no-go. You think you're poisoning him if you mention carrots. <laughs> so his new thing yes. now is at the moment he loves Peter Rabbit. So we said now we must try and do something with Peter Rabbit. Say these are Peter Rabbit carrots or something like that and see how that goes. Just all will about just trying to, like don't just, my advice is if someone, if the child just says no, I don't like it and push it away, just don't leave it at that. Keep going back and try and encourage and bring different things into it. You know, that helps a lot, I think. Like even for example, oh, before Aaron started school. But it, it's a bit like being a diplomat. World war breaks yeah. out. We could go <laughs> over to Ukraine and sort out the whole situation with that much experience. <laughs> but um, even like starting school, we were going. To, we were saying how like Aaron wouldn't even eat a sandwich or anything like that. Wouldn't even try a sandwich. Now he'd have toast, we'll say, and he liked jam. He'd stick his finger in a pot of jam and eat his finger. So we said one day we'll try a jam sandwich, which we did. We cut them in little squares and all that, and said we'll try these now and get your proud and see how he gets on and tried a little bite out of the jam sandwich another bite and he loved it now he has jam sandwiches in school and another time then we said we're going to try another new sandwich now and this is called ham and then we say like a certain person in the family we say like his godfather kevin he's a big man we do call him big kev we just say big kev loves ham sandwiches and that's why he's so strong and his eyes would light up and he'd say you can, you can nearly see him saying god i'll try a ham sandwich myself and he tried it, and he likes it. So, so far, so good. Now, there is certain stuff he has tried, and he hasn't liked, and that's fine. But, like, and then I find as he kind of got older, it was easier. When he was small, he didn't understand. But now, you know, if you say to him, just try, and if you don't like it after you try it, that's fine. But there is stuff that he has said, no, I don't like it, and he has tried, and he has liked it. Do you know that kind of a way? Well, you have very good psychology there because you're pointing him at a goal. So whether it's looking like Big Kev, muscles like the Hulk, I'm thinking of my fella downstairs now. I'll tell him, 
pilots eat these hash browns because he wants yeah. to be a pilot. He's obsessed with planes. It's amazing, though, That's really. a yeah, genius it's amazing. idea. You tell him Linda, that. Linda, I've about. enjoyed immensely your, your ideas. I hope they're of use as well to the earlier caller. And thank you very, very much for your time. No, probably will. Lovely talking to you, too. And you. That's Linda Murphy from Portleash. So, who, who do we... Sorry, I'm just looking at a text that landed in. Entering the competition from Niall and Clombalogue. What did the bra say to the hat? You go ahead, I'll give these two a lift. Badoosh douche, there you go. <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, uh, Sinead Hubble, the chief executive uh, and bottle washer and uh, overall head honcho of the Midlands Today Show, she has picked one at random and it is Nora Allen in Mount Bolas. Nora, you are heading to Francis Black, Mary Coughlin and Sharon Shannon in concert in the Tullamore Court Hotel this Friday, compliments of St. Kieran's Nursing Home and you'll find them in Rathcabin near Burr. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Adam Cunningham, for all the great music and all the button pressing. Thank you, Sinead Hubble, for pressing different buttons. We'll be back on your radio tomorrow morning from nine. Take care. Bye-bye.